everyone, and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games. I'm your co-host, Mark Bigney, and with me as always is my loyal partner, Mike Walker. How you doing, Walker? Always good, Mark. This week on So Very Wrong About Games, our feature game is going to be The World of Smog, Rise of Moloch. And our feature topic is going to be games that shouldn't work, but they do. These are going to be games that really shouldn't function, but yet miraculously somehow come together in a package that functions. Let us start off with some important fan feedback and clarifications. Now, unsurprisingly, given that we broadcast to board gamers, we have amongst our audience some of the most punctilious pedants, or pedants, if you will, that one could ever hope for. But we've gotten a lot of feedback lately about the pronunciation of some of our words. Now, I, for one, would rather our fans go and harass the people online who mistake versus for verse, or indeed just flatly misuse words, but no, 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 they come after us for some of our pronunciation. So let's address that. I don't understand how they could possibly come after me, Mark, because I make up most of the words that I say, so really only I can be the boss of how they're supposed to be enunciated correctly. That is an excellent observation. And while I, for one, think that anyone who implies that I put the emphasis on the wrong syllable is engaged in the very epitome of hyperbole. But putting all that aside, uh, we've gotten some pushback on a couple of things in particular. And this is from multiple different people. So it's not just a, a lone voices crying out in the wilderness. One of them is the way you routinely, and I sometimes say the word scythe, sometimes we say scythe which is a legitimate pronunciation of the word. This is, I don't know how dialectal this is, because some people, even from our region of southern Ontario, have commented that this is unusual to them. For what it's worth, Walker is from southern Ontario. I am from French Canada. I have the Montreal Irish Anglo accent, which is a very particular thing. I should note for the record that many of my closest friends are MIT trained linguists. So I do speak with some very, very tiny smattering of authority on this matter. Another one that we, we, we've gotten remarks on several times, this is a word that I use and, and you don't use, which is corollary. And Americans pronounce it corollary. And that's the American pronunciation. That's the emphasis on the first syllable as opposed to the emphasis of the second syllable, which is the more traditional British pronunciation. But we as Canadians, in many ways, this isn't always true, but sometimes we get to use the British way and sometimes we use the American way. It's uh, kind of the privilege of being a tiny country that no one cares about. We get to just pick and choose whatever we like to do. It's wonderful. So I say corollary, and uh, that's not just me being crazy or my having read it in a book and not knowing how to pronounce it properly. That is a legitimate pronunciation of the word. When I, I, I will say, however, when I say kub, I am just being stupid. I know that I, I don't actually mean kub. I, I, it's just back in the day when we were Eurogamers 10 to 15 years ago, when the highest board game technology was manifested as, as little wooden cubes, one got tired of saying cubes all the damn time. That's right. And just to be whimsical, I would sometimes say kub. And that kind of has stuck. And, and now we don't have to labor exclusively with cubes anymore, but sometimes I lapse into that. So uh, next time you feel the, the the urge to tweet or reach out on Facebook about how we pronounce something incorrectly, I guess you should still keep doing it, whatever. But <laughs> know that, you know, we do talk funny for a reason sometimes. Uh, it's because of the metric system. And I like watching Mark's eye twitch. Yeah, I mean, look, as, as an incredibly tiresome pedant myself, I can respect that. It's just a lot of people who seek out to correct people's use of language don't sometimes don't know what they're talking about. For example, uh, the people who endlessly like to point out that you should never use passive sentences but don't actually know what a passive sentence is. Anyhow, that's a separate topic entirely. But <laughs> So on to games that we've played this week. Mark, oh, wait, wait, games? This is a games podcast? It totally is, believe it or not. I thought this was a pronunciation podcast. It is not. The English lesson is over. Oh, okay. And it's on to what games we played this week. What did you play last week, Walker? I'm looking over my list and seeing as I worked about 40 hours and the number I've Number of games that I played, I don't even know how I slept. So instead of listing, I'm not, it's too many to even list. It's over 10 games. So I'm just going to talk about the ones that are interesting. We brought Zombicide out again, and it still is a great game for what it is. I always try to put my things into slots, and I'm not saying Zombicide's a great game for it, but if you just want something where you're going to slog around, kill a bunch of zombies, it really does the trick. I absolutely agree that in every collection, if you're going to maintain a large collection, there should be something like Zombicide there. Something cute but stupid, something that's relatively simple and that allows you to amass a massive body count. Because there is there's a certain pleasure in being able to lay out that many corpses at your feet. For me, it's Massive Darkness. That's that's where I get my fix. And, uh, I, you know, Zombicide isn't quite my thing, but I respect the fact that it definitely fills a niche. Oh, which I forgot to tack on Black Plague onto all those sentences. 
Zombicide, Black Plague. I mean, is there really that much of a difference? It's I've... a huge difference. What's the... <sighs> Killing your own teammates made it very unfun. Yeah, I li- I kind of like that targeting rule. I mean, it's not a huge... De- First of all, I don't understand why people made that much of a deal about the targeting rule, as though it was the be-all and end-all of stupidity. It, it, it was... Well, it wasn't stupid. It was just like like we said, we you pull this game out to have fun and to slog around. So if you have this thing that's hugely impeding you know, this targeting system, the whole reason why you have guns is to blow guys away and it, and you can't do that, then... Fair enough, I can see that. I just heard most people, most of the ob- objections that I read were often couched in terms of realism, which is absurd to oh. me. That seems ridiculous. If you're going to start criticizing Zombicide for realism, I think you're uh, you're barking up the wrong tree. Last week I got to try for the first time a game called Black Orchestra, and you were there, so it's probably also on your list. Black Orchestra recently has entered its second edition. A number of minor changes were implemented. And this is a co-op game about assassinating, or the plots to assassinate Adolf Hitler during the Second World War. Actually, the game starts before the Second World War, but more on that in a moment, perhaps. And it's a pure co-op, so everyone's pulling in it together. And there's nominally this uh, this element of historicity in that historical events take place over the course of the game, and they have an impact on how easy it is to get access to the Fuhrer, where he is, how motivated the conspirators are to kill the Fuhrer, things like that. And I gotta say, people around the table seem to be pretty pro on it, and you, you definitely seem to be among them. What was what was your, what were your thoughts on the game, Walker? Uh, without going too much into it, I really liked it. I think it would be a great teaching tool. Like if someone at the table was a great historian, knew a lot about World War II, I think it would be a great way to teach people what happened and why certain things happened. I thought it was great how we just talked. It ties into what we talked about last week, right? How you know talk about real life events. But other than that, I thought it was. I, I wouldn't ask to play it again, but I would play it again. Yeah, so I think there are two things here. I think there's this as a game and this as an attempt to, or at least seeking to aspire to to model history. And I think on both axes, the, no pun intended, the game is rather seriously flawed. And, and for that reason, I wasn't terribly pleased with it. As a game, you're largely, it's one of those mostly reactive co-ops where you're pulling cards off of an event deck and that kind of drives the tempo of the game and you're just being reactive. If you're sitting there... And in Black Orchestra, you get all these plots which are randomly distributed. And if you're sitting on the plot and you've very laboriously gone and you've accumulated all the resources you need to plot, but then you have to be in the right place at the right time. Now, and this is all very thematic, right? If you're plotting to kill a head of state, you do have to be very reactive and you have to be very lucky. And you have to be able to, to strike decisively when you get your narrow window. And even then, it might be incredibly risky. But as a game, I find that unsatisfying. I mean, yeah, a lot of other co-ops like Pandemic are driven by a random card draw. But in Pandemic, you can still go and proactively work towards doing something. And it feels much more deterministic than Black Orchestra. Because in Black Orchestra, you pull a card and says, oh, now he's over here. Now he's over there. Now he's in some other place. Well, is he going to be there next turn? Who knows? Probably not. Maybe. And in the early stages, felt especially unsatisfying because, and this was a bit of, again, a bit of a thematic disconnect. As you start out, the conspirators that you're playing are unwilling to do anything. Literally. They're literally timid on their card. And when they're timid, they're not allowed to hold many cards. They're not allowed to go and do plots. They're not allowed to do things. So there's this weird element of, I'm playing a conspirator conspirator who doesn't want to conspire. And the first part of the game is you have to drag them over the finish line to, to like, here you are as their sort of psychic motivator to being like, come on, guy, you can do it. Yeah, I, I thought it was very thematic, actually. Like, just think if you're in, I, I don't even want to pretend to know what it was like to be in Germany, but you are a German citizen and your whole country is getting behind this person and you're conspiring to do the opposite. You know, there's got to be conflicting thoughts going through your head and you're just trying to bring them over this threshold to, to go through with it. I respect that entirely. Yes, thematically, that that works as a historical narrative. But as a game, though, it breaks the thematic immersion because it, what it is is it is, it is a, a nice, bright reminder that you are not the person you are portraying. You are this other party. You're, you're not able to inhabit the mindset or the role of this character because this character has their own mental state. And you, need you as the player, need to finesse their mental state so that, that they, as a pawn, will do what you want them to do. It's it's a really strange sort of cognitive dissonance where your historical personage is fighting you. But as for its history, a number of people around the table commented that they thought it would be a, a good teaching tool, which I find strange because the game is very acontextual in a lot of ways. You know, you pull a card and it says something, something Sudetenland. And you either know about the Sudetenland or you don't. And if you don't know what was going on with the Sudetenland, if you don't know about the conference, and here I'm not, you know, I, I'm no great expert on anything, really. And I'm certainly no great expert on World War II, but I know enough about Sudetenland to know what that means. 
and you know about about Chamberlain and Diladier and all that other stuff in the conference and in in the conferences in Vienna and you know peace in our time blah 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 blah. But if you don't know those things, then you know it's completely divorced from reality and and nothing really makes sense. So yes, if there's a great historian at the table, they can pause and say, okay, everyone, what this card represents is at that time, well, let me tell you about the parliamentary system in Britain. And, you know, like, sure, but then you're not playing a game anymore. It ends up feeling a little bit like window dressing, and I found that a a little weird. The final thing that I'll note about historicity, and this is actually where I think that as a cultural artifact, it's genuinely problematic beyond just unsatisfying and disconnected, but problematic. We talked about how sometimes games play into potentially toxic cultural standards. And I think that this game plays into a couple of, not necessarily toxic, but deeply problematic historical myths. One of them is that without Hitler, everything would have been fine. Because that, that's indeed how the game works, right? You assassinate Hitler and you win. That's it. The game's over. So you end up in, in strange situations where, for example, in the game that we played, the Soviets had already occupied much of even core Germany. Germany. We won in the very, basically the very nick of time, but we assassinated the Fuhrer, so we won. It's like, well, he was going to kill himself in a, in a short while anyway. I don't quite like the, the historical consequences seem seem a bit strange in that sense. There, there have been a number of novels to explore this concept as well. The general historical consensus is that you get rid of the Fuhrer and still, things are still really terrible for a very long time in a lot of deeply problematic ways. So the way that it sort of fetishizes the Hitler assassination narrative, I find it a little bit troublesome because, again, it furthers this myth that, you know, Either the, the, the noble heads of the Wehrmacht, more on that in a moment, or, you know, the decent people in, in, in the Nazi regime could have taken over if only this one guy were out of the way. It's like, well, no, like, I'm not disputing his, his, his history epic making evil, but he in many ways was a manifestation of a lot of social ills. And so to, to fetishize this one guy anyway. But the, and then the second problem is, is that it really kind of lionizes a lot of these conspirators, many of whom were deeply nasty people themselves. So, yes, there were some lots of noble motivations going into some of the people who, like, you know, uh, a lot of people lionize von Stauffenberg, and that's fine. I mean, he was a complicated guy. But uh, but Ka- William Canaris, all the materials in the game present him as, you know, this deeply principled dude. It's like, well, I mean, he was a big fascistic anti-Semite, too. He just, like, a lot of the conspirators, both the ones that we play in the game and the ones broadly in history, they objected to Hitler primarily because he was losing a war. If he was doing better in the war then they would have had no problem with him. And everything, you know, it's like, yay, Deutschland du Baralis. Like, a lot of the objections were principally based on this guy's weak, he's bad at military stuff, et cetera, et cetera. So suffice to say there's a lot going on that I found a bit ooky. Agreed. Speaking on the lighter side of ooky would be the number of tokens you have to shoot around the board the whole time. Like, there was what, I don't know, say eight? Is that being too many? There were, eight, I think there were less six, than, there were at least five five or six leader tokens that you like moved around the board almost every turn. And I thought that was immensely fiddly. Yeah. And that's what I was talking about, how you have to, you know, it's it's pure random chance where everyone is. And some of these guys hand out serious penalties when you start your turn there. And sometimes you just don't have a chance to react. It's well, it's in my, like what I always say, it's random randomness. It's the only tool of the co-op, full co-op game, so... I'm not going to object to to any randomness whatsoever, but in the context of Black Orchestra, you have random movement of these guys, random cards entering the system that you need in order to get anything done, random chits that are spread out of the board in order to get these things done, and then when everything comes together, when the bright, piercing beam of, of, of luck strikes you full on the forehead and you've got the plot, and you've got the weapons, and you've got the items, and you've got the card, and everyone's in the right place, then you get to play a dice game. And that's 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 the resolution to everything falling together. So there's a fair amount of randomness to go around. For sure. All right, before this becomes a deep dive on Black Orchestra, let's move on. I, don't know I how... have feelings, Walker. I, I have many feels. I, I don't know how, uh, how I can come up with another game after that. Stop stifling oh, me. Oh, and, and we pl- I played the Happy Bunny game. <laughs> you hate the Happy and, Bunny and game. And everything was, no, no, no. everything we... was full of flowers and love. <laughs> Someone showed you the Happy Bunny game. Someone showed you Bunny Kingdom, and you ranted about it's it. True. It's true. It, it drove you to fits of rage. So you don't get to make fun of me. No, for no. Being... I'm just saying that it's hard to come up. With, you know, <laughs> talk about a game after the heaviness of that. Okay. But well, I am going to talk about Tobago because I've been trying to get it to the table for the past two weeks, and I want to talk about it because it's a fantastic deduction game. And what Tobago is is that you're going to seed the board with all sorts of. Uh, statues and palm trees and huts and all sorts of train features. And then you're going to have four different colored 
treasures and you're going to play cards on these treasures that it's going to reduce places it could be based on these landmarks. And it's just a neat game of buzzing around the island on your SUVs, picking up treasures, narrowing down where the treasures can be with these really cool deduction cards. And it's a really great family game. Yeah, Tobago is probably my favorite deduction game, which is to say that I like it. It's like you're going to get a thing on that. See, look, there's no A there, Mark. It's Tobago, not Tobago. <laughs> I, I, I actually genuinely don't know how to pronounce that place name. But I can, I can tell you about vowel variation between Canadian Standard English and American Standard English. How about you tell me about your next game instead? <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, together we played the Nasty 7 again. Yes. Which is... <laughs> Such a stupid game, but I like it. But that's what I mean. It's like when you look at the rule book, you just say, say this is not even a game. Moving left is not a game. But <laughs> but uh, this is. This is a game. And it's it's funny to watch the reaction and watch people like trying to count around the board. And uh, like I don't even want to explain to people on this air on how to play because you're like, you'll listen to this and say, that's not a game. Yeah, I think the tagline for this, instead of moving left is not a game, it should be counting to seven is not a game. That's right. And it's... It, it, it's just it's just fun to watch. It's like Coyote. The thing about Coyote that I have is that I have almost as much fun watching people play it as I do playing it myself. The Nasty 7 is very much the same way. Watching people... It's actually closer in a lot of ways to Jungle Speed. I like watching people play Jungle Speed and dealing with the, the real-time frustration and the paranoia about making a mistake. And everyone gets a little touchy and jittery. In a, in a good way, though. Uh, so I, I enjoyed it. It was only the second time that I played. And I was able to cope a little bit better with the madness that was going on, but it was still very enjoyable. All right, my last game that I'm going to talk about is Twilight Imperium 4th Edition. Again. Never heard of it. Because it was yet our, our monthly game. And the only thing I'm going to say about it this time is is the action cards. And it's just, const- after playing game after game, I'm really wondering why these action cards are still in the game after f- after the four editions. I seem to recall some incredibly erudite, stunningly handsome man talking about how the action cards in Twilight Imperium 4 were nonsense. Who could that have been? Well, I, I agreed that they were nonsense, but I just thought maybe it's this thing that mixes up the game that maybe it helps you bring down the leader or, or you know... I just found in the last few games that we played that it's very tight, very thematic, very tactful, and then you throw these random nonsense cards in that could do anything, and I think it's just bitter. I'm just bitter. That's what it is. Okay. <laughs> is that all you got for your list? Do you no, no. I've been playing a lot more Ortis Regni, which I feel a little like I'm cheating a little bit because, again, many of my plays of Ortis Regni are on the Steam version. There's a very, very good freely available uh, version on Steam of the, of the card game Ortis Regni. And it's got a very good tutorial mode, which is very nice because I'm, we're going to be talking about this game later, actually. Well, I am. And it's very I found it very hard to introduce to new people unless they're willing to go and do the tutorial by themselves. I've been getting back into it in part because my table isn't fully set up, so I'm not able to play board games at my house. So instead I have to play computer games alone, like some sort of shut-in. And it's uh, it's just as compelling as it ever was. I love the game to death. It's got really weird deck building in it. There are 15 different multi-use cards in the game, and there's more or less unrestricted deck building. The only limitation is you're making a 24-card deck, and you can't have more than six copies of any card. But other than that, you can just take whatever you want. And the fact that the game works is a minor miracle, as I say. More on that later. And I've been trying new deck combinations it's a bit of a shame because uh, the publisher of Ortis Regni, uh, John Sudbury, he seems to have kind of sort of disappeared from the internet. There was a period where he wasn't replying to emails. Everyone who ordered from his store got their orders eventually that I could see. The people who had outstanding complaints on BoardGameGeek, they all say that they got their stuff. But it seems as though he's kind of disappeared. I'm not entirely shocked that this happened because this is not really a product that I ever saw being particularly successful. For one thing, he was undercharging for the ridiculously beautiful components of the game. This is a game with laser etched wood uh, deck holders and was retailing for under $50 MSRP, which is absurd, but I, I'm still, I'm still happy. I've got my copy and I've got the expansion and I'll be playing on steam for no doubt years to come. That my only feeling about it as I played it a couple times with you. I thought it was a great game, but it was such an odd release. They released it at Gen Con. It is like a, you know, a private publisher 
and they rented out an entire hall at Gen Con. It must have cost them a fortune. It was just so weird. At the time when I when I initially discovered the game, I, I said very frequently, I hope the guy's independently wealthy because I, I'd hate to think that someone's mortgage went into this. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. What you got for us, Walker? Super exciting news, Mark. I think I know what you're going to talk about. You're not going to believe this. I think I am going to believe it. I almost zombicide invader. Like, oh my God, can you believe it? Another zombicide game because we didn't have enough already. But now it's in space, Walker. I know it's in space. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to hold it on this one because I'm going to wait for the next one. It's going to be Zombabees, <laughs> where these killer bees come and you're defending against bees. And no, wait, no. And then after, then after that, it'll be sharks, killer sharks, and there'll be a pit, and then you jump the shark. <laughs> See what I did there, Mark? I did. I, I, I jumped the shark. No, I, I get it. I get it. We're gonna have to write a note here to my publisher. Thank you for the writer. Thank you for the great joke, writer. See what a great joke that was. I think the next option is probably Zombicide Munchkin or Munchkin Zombicide. I'm not sure which one will come first. You can do both, though. But all jokes aside, like seriously, like why another zombie game? Like because it'll sell. Because it will sell. I mean, Green Green Horde didn't do as well as Black Plague, but it still brought in yeah. millions of bucks. So. True. This is just more evidence of consumerism and the mighty dollar. Yeah. I mean, and look, and that's fine. I mean, just nope. just, the, just the mere fact that neither of us have, has any interest in it that's whatsoever. That's right. It doesn't matter. That's what, I, I have no problem with that. These play, these people get into the business to make money. And, and if they're making money, then all the power to them. And that gives us the right to mock them. Absolutely. You're quite right. What have you got? I have only one minor bit of news. I remain without internet, so I've not been consuming as much uh, news as I would like to. This is a small bit of uh, cross-promotion. A few weeks ago, I recorded an episode of the Longview podcast with Joe Salen and TC. Joe Salen and I met when I was on his uh, other podcast, which is also worth listening to. Well, actually, I shouldn't say that. We, we here at So Very Wrong About Games cannot recommend that you consume any other media at all. I don't recommend reading or listening to anything that we don't produce. What, what was this podcast about? So this... <laughs> was it about... There's other board game podcasts? I know, I know. It's, it's a shame. They, uh, I, I, for, first Weird. of all, I was shocked to discover that, I, that we didn't invent the idea. I know. And it's, it's desperately unfortunate that out of politeness, they didn't stop doing theirs once ours came on. I would, I would only assume that would be the polite thing to do. But, yeah. you know, to each his own. Anyway, the long view is where you spend an entire episode talking about just one game. And we recorded an episode about Tribune, which is my favorite worker placement game. And so if you want to hear me talk about Tribune for about 90 minutes, <laughs> then the most recently uploaded episode of the long view is for you. And I'll be doing another episode of the long view later. And that'll probably be uploaded sometime before the heat death of the universe. We'll see. All right. Quick news is the Mage Knight Big Box. WizKids is going to put out Mage Knight with all three expansions. For all those Mage Knight fans out there that already have everything, you can repurchase it again. I just hope, I sincerely hope, that they don't upgrade the components very much. Because well, if they do, then I might have to buy it again. Well, yeah, they said alternate paint jobs on your figures. So now you're going to have to get it for sure because oh, that's they not... have different paint jobs on your fantastically sculpted druid figure that's so dynamic and awesome looking, that druid. Oh, what a great figure that is. Staying on the WizKids for the my last news thing is the WizKids have removed Blade Runner 2049 Nexus Protocol from their list. Apparently they're not going to put it out again, which is too bad because I, I heard it came with Ryan Gosling in the box, or at least a cardboard standout, which is pretty well the same thing based on his performance in the movie. <laughs> <coughs> Harsh but fair. <laughs> and that is the news. On to our feature game, Smog, Rise of the Moloch. So there's a little bit of context, right? Because there's this strange universe that Simon has kind of sort of been building up. So there was on Her Majesty's Service, so World of Smog colon Her Majesty's Service, which was basically a Euro game. It was a relatively straightforward kind of thing. And strangely enough, they're, they've decided to use this to sort of anchor a sort of tentpole universe or something. Like they have other products in this universe planned. It's a reasonably okay fleshed out universe in terms of graphic assets and, and ideas. Nothing particularly novel, of course, but, you know, reasonably f- uh, fleshed out. And so this is the second game in their quote unquote series. They don't share anything mechanically. 
they don't really share anything narratively, strictly speaking. They're just sort of both in the same shared universe, which I find unusual because Simon has, in the past, put out lots of games that could have stronger narrative foci, like, for example, some of the later Zombicide offerings, like even Massive Darkness, like Rum and Bones or things like that. You could do linked evolving narrative campaign stuff or whatever, but there tended to be very, very little fluff involved. They've also done games that didn't need any like Dogs of War, which we've talked about. Dogs of War doesn't really need much thematic underpinning whatsoever, but there's like 20 pages of fiction in the rulebook about all the different noble houses that are really just colors and all the different player factions, which are really just busts. And so I've, I, I, I never know why a company like that chooses to devote art assets or fiction assets or whatever. Now, it's possible that this is all from the designers, right? That the designers show up and they say, look, I've written all these stories. Will you include it in the rulebook? But the designers of Rise of Moloch are not the people who did Her Majesty's Service. So it's this bizarre, bizarre series of choices. So what do you do in Rise of Moloch? Well, it's like the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. You're going to get your Sean Connerys. You're going to get your beasts and your wizards and it's all happens in Victorian England with a bunch of punks that like to boil water and you're going to go on these missions and you're going to save damsels in distress you're going to have all these cool psychic abilities and you're going to collect weapons and it's really hard to get excited about this game due to my massive disappointment but you're going to in combat you're going to uh, form up these dice pools like every other game and you're going to roll your attack versus their defense. And you're going to play a one versus many game with tiles and doors and fire. And that's about it for Agents of Smog. So let's talk a little bit about the one versus all genre. This is a genre where one person controls all the bad guys and then all the other players control typically one character with a set of abilities. And they tend to be scenario driven games. Where there's a scenario with victory conditions for the quote-unquote good guys and victory conditions for the quote-unquote bad guy. Now, probably the most famous games of this ilk currently are Descent, now in its second edition, and Imperial Assault, both by FFG and both working on more or less the same engine. And there are a whole bunch of different games of this type. I mean, you seem to think that there are that this is a sort of an overwhelming genre. I don't know that it is necessarily. I think ever since it's been demonstrated that co-op games could do roughly the same kind of thing, that the, that the co-op genre of all the players controlling heroes working cooperatively against the game system have kind of taken out a lot of the space that this, this genre used to occupy. And now it's kind of split between the co-op and the versus uh, games. But it is definitely the case that when it comes to games like this, there are a fair number to choose from. And there are more coming out, you know, Conan came out and the Batman game is going to be one yeah, well, Like again. I said, I think at any time you, on Kickstarter, there's three going constantly. Sure. But the same could be true of lots of different genres, right? I mean, the same is true of even, you know, tiling games or co-op games. or Well, certainly anything with minis, you're going to find more prevalence here. But your your view that there's a, a, a massive amount of games like this is probably true, but I think perhaps overblown. If you if you include all the co-op variations, then yes, there's there's an endless, endless number. But I know that you are... Uh, a, a, a fan of Imperial Assault, and it's not. I don't think it's exclusively because of Star Wars. What is it that Imperial Assault does that uh, you know better, or in ways that you think Smog doesn't? Well, I'm the first to agree that there are always big problems in one versus many games or co-op games. The fact that there's going to be quarterbacking going on, alpha gaming going on, that lots of times it can boil down to a game that is really a two-player game that all of the roles are so minimal that it, it that you're waiting for your turn to do so little that it really should be just a two-player game and i think smog really falls into that category where the difference between the agents is there but it's so minimal and their abilities are so small that waiting for your turn is not really worth it. I agree. Smog feels an awful lot like, well, Rise of Moloch feels an awful lot like a two-player game. Every hero is not differentiated enough. I agree with that as well. There's one thing that I initially, when I initially heard about it, I thought was going to be very clever. At the start of the game, everyone gets a role 
So you pick the character that you're going to be playing, and every character has their own special ability. But every character also gets a role. There's the leader role. There's the Samaritan role. There's the healer and all those, all those other things. And I thought that, that was going to really help with the customization, but it doesn't really. What it actually does is it feeds into the sameness that all the other characters feel, that you tend to just be defined by only one or two special stats, whether you have upgrades or not, whether you have equipment or not, because most of the time you're just going to be running around and either punching things or shooting things. Feeding into that further is the fact that you only get two actions on your turn, and choosing to move is one of those actions. And I think that we've gone a long way in game design past the general notion that, well, when you activate, you get to move and then you get to attack. And that's the be-all and end-all of, any, of anything anyone ever gets to do. And Moloch, uh, Rise of Moloch kind of gets us back a little bit towards that in that you only have these two actions and that's, that's more or less it. So because you, you have sufficiently little to do on your turn and the characters are all kind of samey, that kind of feeds into the what you call the quarterbacking element. Because generally one of the solutions to quarterbacking that I personally like is if you make the asymmetry strong enough that I'm not in a position to know everything you can do, we can then engage in meaningful cooperative discussion of a, a good open type. It's like, well, can you deal with this threat? Rather than, you should move to this square and do this specific thing because that is what we need the group that is what the group needs you to do exactly much like gloomhaven right it's like are you going to deal with those guys over there i can deal with them or i can delay them or and then you know you don't need to do this the exact card well because you can't see the exact card and they just did a great job and same thing with the others that just came out it's it's much the same i agree that it's just building up dice pools but the movement on the board is so much more, you know, locking guys down and and changing the dice rolls and moving around. Of course, it can be, you know, argued that it didn't do so well, but I really like the others much more than Agents of Smog, for sure. I like the, the others more than uh, Rise of Moloch as well, but the they both suffer, I think, from a similar problem. And this is something that I really... This is, this is more of a personal preference, but it's something I feel very strongly. And that is games of this type, whether they're one versus all or co-op, I think they really need to strike the right balance in terms of mobility because if it's a game where it's just basically a race to get from one side to the other, as many descent scenarios and indeed many Imperial Assault scenarios feel to me, then I feel like I'm playing an overly complicated race game to a certain extent. And all this combat stuff, which let's be honest, if we're going to line up 20 billion little plastic figures and you're going to give me, you know, three different kinds of guns and things like that and then tell me that attacking is a bad idea... I'm probably going to feel that this game isn't firing on all cylinders. And on those scenarios where attacking is so rare that and, and that it's often a mistake to stand and fight ever, then I tend to get disappointed. It's not what I'm looking for in games like this, to be honest. I, I don't need to be killing things all the time. That's not that's not my gaming preference. But in games like this, come on. like It, it lends itself to that. In Smog, in Rise of Moloch specifically... <sighs> Look, when we're talking about Smog, we're going to be talking... We're talking about Rise of Moloch from now on, all right? Just accept that. In Rise of Moloch, the... Uh, they, they go too far, I think, in the other direction because any figure, any enemy figure that's next to you effectively bases you. If you move away, you start taking wounds. And that's not something that you often have the luxury of doing. We're talking about a relatively low wound count for everybody. And for minions, it's just one. So you can base a minion no problem whatsoever. If they try to leave, they die. That's as simple, simple as it is. But for heroes, if you're a ranged hero then you can only attack something next to you. If you're a melee hero and you want to go attack something else, well, you, you if you leave, you're going to take damage in the process anyway. So basically, very often, if your opponent, whether you're the good guy or the bad guy, if your opponent has put somebody next to you, well, all you're going to be doing on your turn is attacking them. And so that's really the pace of the game dictating what you're going to be doing. And so everything just feels very static. Everything feels very, very, very sort of... Uh, stationary, and all that I'm doing is just whacking the thing that's within arm's reach. And that's one of the problems that I had with the others. The others really discourages you often from moving, because there's fires that are out in the board. Same thing in Smog. In Smog, there are fires that, in the first scenario anyway, there are, you know, fires that show up. And all these things that discourage you from moving. And I don't like it when a game tells me I can't move, and I don't like it when a game tells me all that I really get to do is move. Oh, that's where it comes in, you know, back to a two-player game. If it, you reduce it to a two-player game, that almost removes all that problem. is because, you know, these guys are going to lock down those guys, and now I'm going to have fun with these other guys, right? And to get back with... I want to just touch on a point about this racing in, in co-op or all-versus-many games. 
and I really just think that when I I've seen that I've seen that problem too, and I really feel as though it's one of these things where you can engage and fall back, and a lot of players have been manipulating the system to to heal back up or to to beat the game that way. And I think they've introduced these mechanisms to make sure you know it keeps the thing moving, and it's and parts of the games games aren't being manipulated to make it easily beatable. I do respect the fact that games like this are very, very, very hard to design well because there's a bunch of different serious design challenges that you have to meet. One of them is avoiding quarterbacking, right? But we agree that Agents of Moloch doesn't really do a good job of that. One of them is handling the trade-off between mobility and being able to control the board space. I don't. I personally don't think that Rise of Moloch does a particularly good job of that. Another challenge is making the combat system interesting. I don't think Moloch does a very good job of that because, as you say, it is purely just a question of, well, I have this stat and I have this weapon. That gives me five dice. I'm rolling these five dice. And that's more or less it. Rerolls are great when you have them, but then it's just a question of rerolling them. And if you're an upper-level character, more, uh, you know, further on in the campaign, you've got a whole bunch of upgrades. All that really means is you're going to be rolling more dice and you might get an upgrade. Or you might get abilities that even lean further into the lack of mobility. Things like knockdown. Knockdown is egregious. If you suffer knockdown, what that means is one of your two activations is to get up. It's effectively a lose-a-turn mechanism, and as we've said, we don't like lose-a-turn mechanisms. So, yeah, I'm sympathetic that there's a lot of, of stuff that if you're going to design a game like this that you need to do well, but there are some tricks that games even from Simon that have recognized how to deal with this. One of the ways to deal with a lot of these problems is to move away from square-based, a grid-based movement system to an area-based movement system. It's a lot easier to balance issues of pacing and distance and even uh, other thornier things like line of sight if you have large areas instead of simple squares. I've also commented personally on how I, I, I hate counting squares. I'm sick to death of it. It's like, okay, I get to move four squares and my range is five. All right, well, count, counting out and counting out. I'm, I, I'm a little over that. If you move to more area movement, then that simplifies matters considerably. And so on all these big major design challenges, I don't think that Rise of Moloch measures up. Same, I'm going to go back to the dice, because that was the biggest disappointment, was the just the more dice pool things. Like, even Mythic Battles, we've talked about this already, is that they have this great dice system where you, you know, you need a high number, so you roll your dice, and if you get maximum, you, there's a whole system, I'm not going to go into what it is, but it's a very clever, quick way to do dice pools, and I, I don't know why they just fell back on the same thing as all these other games. Even Shadespire, another game we've talked about, has the support system. Now, granted, it's one rule that you seem to have difficulty internalizing, but it is nonetheless the case that you can finesse the die results by carefully positioning your guys and making sure that you're all adjacent to the target, and that helps you with the results. There are any number of ways that you can finesse these issues. You can have powers that trigger off of certain die results, and in theory, Rise of Moloch has that, but it's used almost never. The BAM system in Massive Darkness or the Enhancement system in Descent or Imperial Assault where you use those little lightning bolts to power various things. It doesn't add considerably to the attack resolution mechanism, but it gives you a feeling of control and agency when you just roll the dice and, you, you know, sometimes it even offers false choices or just the illusion of choice, but it's still something instead of just piling up as many dice as you can and chucking them. Especially when the entirety of your turn consists of just doing two attacks either because you were based or because that's that's what you're planning on doing, it really doesn't make you feel the sense of excitement that a game like this ideally would want to inspire. It's true. I'm done pounding down this game. I'd like to talk about things I enjoy about it now. Fair enough. All right. So first thing on my list, it's not really in any particular order, is low record keeping. Like we saw at the end of our game when we started our campaign, you really don't need to keep track of anything like you do in all the other, you know, scenario-based things. You just collect your cards and you're ready for the next scenario. So that was great. No paperwork is definitely an asset. I agree. The theme and the models is something that I'm right into. And like you said, if they're going to do more games in this genre, like if they do a role-playing system or they do anything like that, then guess what? You've got the models and stuff to back it up. They did a really, really good job of the models in terms of selling the, uh, selling the, the theme. The poses are all really well done and evocative, with a couple of exceptions. Um, this is not a comment on bad representation of women. This is just a comment on missed opportunities. Like, there are three or four sculpts that are basically just women in big, poofy Victorian skirts, and they're kind of hard to tell apart, which is unfortunate. Because there are lots of really, really striking models. You look at them and say, oh, I wonder who that guy is. He must be really cool. And sadly, often they're not. There's guys with 
weird magic boxes and aliens stuffed into them on the mini themselves. There's a, a, a mini where uh, a, a tentacle monster is is kind of in the process of maybe being attacked by or attacking a character. Lots of really, really impressive little touches in the visual design of the game. So we con- we're constantly talking about how Simon is raising the bar, but they keep outdoing themselves. So well done on that. Next thing is lots of material. Like this thing kickstarted with about four, like I, four different scenarios. I haven't even opened them. I didn't make the mistake that I've made with all the other Simon games where you like open everything and, and combine everything. And then when you go to play, you have no idea you know what to use or what not to use. And you just end up just leaving it on the shelf and going with something that's much easier. I, I just put them on the shelf. I've got the base game. going to get through that. And then, you know, then the, all the new stuff will be there for later. I haven't had a chance to read any of it, but I'm hoping the stories, the stories so far, you know, are, you know, the typical damsel in distress and other things like that. But I think, I think hopefully it's going to be good. Yeah. I just, there, there probably might've been a time where I would have been willing to suffer through a mechanically uninteresting game for a decent story. But I, but for me, Rise of Moloch is now definitely in, in the Charterstone category. I, you know, doesn't do anything interesting enough to make me want to play the same thing over and over and over again. So what about the planning your turns out, putting the cards out, you know, determine your turn order? Isn't that great? And I, I, it's like, it's just yet another mechanism that does not need to be there. Like, what is that going, you know, just due to the fact that there are cards and other things that are going to move around that order anyway, why aren't we just doing what you do in every other game and just going back and forth and activating each unit once? You know, once you've activated, then you can't activate until the turn's done. I just thought it was an extra step that did not need to be there. Pre-plotting out all the activation order, I think, was there just as grist for more card effects. So let's talk a little bit about uh, about mechanisms, because there are two things about how the bad guy works that I think are, are need to go into detail. One of them is good and one of them is bad, although the one that's good is also kind of bad. So the one that I don't like is the bad guy gets to draw these chaos cards. And chaos cards are any number of one-shot effects that help mess with the, 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 the so-called gentlemen, the heroes. And one of the chaos cards messes with the pre-planning order. And part of me wonders, like, well, did they put the pre-planning order just so they could mess with it later? I don't know. Maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. But the pre-planning, I agree with you, doesn't really add much. It it just it serves to actually help ensure that when it's your turn to activate your own hero, maybe the thing that you wanted to do isn't viable anymore. And as a result, you don't have much to do of interest on your turn. Whereas if it was just an alternating activation sequence and the gentleman got to activate whichever gentleman they wanted to, when it was their turn, you could help ensure that they had something interesting to do because you were activating them on on the spot. Now the chaos cards in particular, they tend to range from reasonably helpful to this is going to turn the scenario around for me. And part of me objects to that wild swing. Part of me recognizes in a game of this depth and length, it's not really that much of a problem. But there's no reason why it couldn't have just been a dashboard of abilities that everyone knew existed and the overlord got to activate either once per game or by spending some number of cost. That would have increased the strategic and tactical control for the bad guys. It would have increased the foreknowledge of the heroes. It would have led to less of a sense of rancor when and if a scenario gets entirely decided by the timely play of a chaos card that was drawn blindly off the top of the deck. So I don't know why that works the way that it does. It could have been done so much better. I mean, this, this this leads to the other thing, which is in Rise of Moloch, you as heroes can sometimes activate abilities with this resource called Ether, which for one thing makes me think of Victorian gentlemen snuffing Ether in the corner and getting all drowsy. So that, 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 that was kind of weird. But when you pay the Ether, it gets paid to the Overlord. And the Overlord uses that Ether to then power their own abilities. That's exactly pulled from Omega Protocol, right? Where you, you're going to get so much... Uh, adrenaline. Adrenaline. And then... The overlord plugs it into his different abilities, and it's a system pulled directly from there. I don't know if they were directly inspired by it or not, but it is so reminiscent of it that that it demands comparison. They pulled from it, but they made it worse in almost every way. Because in level 7 Omega Protocol, the overlord player has all these tactical responsibilities that they can power with adrenaline. And again, the heroes, or the, or the, well, disco team, 
in, in the case of level summoning mega protocol, the commandos, they know what abilities are there and they know what resources are needed to power it. You still have this opportunity for surprise and reversal, but it's not like, oh, I had no idea you had that ability to begin with. It was more a question of now I'm springing my trap. Now I'm paying for it. You have fed me enough resources. I can now strike back with this thing instead of a, a, a deck of random cards as it is in Rise of Moloch. The other problem is some heroes, this again goes to hero design, some heroes in Rise of Moloch, their abilities are almost imp- entirely powered by ether, And there's very little they can do without spending it. The, the one character that you always seem to take, the, uh, the, the, the magic user, seems to fall into that. And in Omega Protocol, even in very early games, you get this tangible sense that the more adrenaline you spend, you're directly powering. You see the immediate feedback of the, of the Overlord getting stronger when you do that. But because of the way Aether Expenditure is handled in Rise of Moloch, because, first of all, some actions require it, you just can't do it without it, so that kind of removes a bit of the choice. And it's also the case that it's sufficiently indirect that you don't really get that same immediate sense of feedback. You don't see the direct consequences of you spending this Aether. And so I think it, it kind of blunts the interesting trade-offs that it is for the heroes. The heroes just get their two activations. They're just going to do whatever they do. Again, usually pounding what's immediately in front of them. Whereas in Omega Protocol, the activation sequence is such that, well, do I want to spend as many activations as I can? Because everything you do makes the Overlord stronger. So the fact that they blunted the system and they made it a little more uh, uh, indirect, I think is really to the game's detriment. I, I should stress, in this genre, a genre that I have a number of serious problems with, the 1v all sort of tactical minis thing, I still think that level 7 Omega Protocol is the game to beat precisely because of the way that it gives the Overlord more to work with and that there's this interaction between the way the heroes act and the Overlord getting stronger. I I agree with that. If they'd only put it on hexes, then it would be also in my books one of the greatest co-op games of all time. Except they have this crazy square diagonal movement range system that seems so overly complicated for a game that it's foolish. Well, that, that's a that's a damned if you do, damned if you don't scenario. It totally, right? it, it, yeah. It's why area movement, I think, is usually is, is usually the best way, because it avoids all those problems. If you go with hexes, you tend to have slightly cleaner line of sight rules, and you don't have to worry about diagonals. But you can't do walls. That's the trick. Like you you yes. just can't do buildings in, in hex systems. Some games have tried. Gunslinger, for example, the old Avalon Hill game, it has hexes, and it tries to do walls and buildings. It just ends up a mess, because you have to worry about half hexes and quarter hexes and eighth of hex and, and, and all manner of things like that. So I don't blame them too much for, for that. I do agree with you that the line of sight rules in the Mega Protocol are a bit wonky, but they're not substantially worse then look, I've been playing. I've been playing games with squares and line of sight, with center to center line of sight rules for decades, and I still am not able to visually eyeball when two things have line of sight to each other. It's always a, a, a fiddly part. Yeah, area movement. Area movement's the way to go. Mythic battles, Pantheon, claustrophobia. Go to area movement. You're not going to be. Uh, gonna the be other unhappy. one, uh, not Doom, but uh, Gears of War. Yeah. All right. Well, that being said, I'm going to put in my two my usual two things: rules for rules. I'm very disappointed. I was really hoping for something more. I really should start reading the rule books of these Kickstarters before I get them. But this was just yet another one of these. The so much plastic for so little, and the plastic is so good that just feeds into the entertainment rating. Is I'm really much looking forward to playing this more. Really, really. That's the first I've heard you say anything about this because we've talked about the game independently of of this broadcast, and in this broadcast, you've said more or less only negative things. Yeah, no, like I said, it, there's two different ways to look at it. And even though the rules are there, I'm just having a lot of fun tying everything together. Like like the the different abilities, the way it looks, the way the story's developing, the the I'm just hoping that it's gonna get that it's going to all tie together and come in with a good story. And I agree with you that a lot of those fundamentals are there, but for me it starts with the game engine. And if the game engine is not something fundamentally that I that I take particular pleasure in interacting with, I start caring a lot less about whether all those other things are there. I'm just wondering if this is the penalty we pay for not doing role playing, right? If is this is this the step down? You know what I mean? Is this, you know, if it's not going to be role playing, then guess what? This is what you get. I actually think this is, I've talked about this before, I think this is the better way to do it. If I want to tell a story, I'm going to go tell a story. And there are any number of 
one-shot game masterless role-playing games that are really, really good about storytelling, about building characters and, and, and storytelling. You've only played one Durant's one time. And indeed, later on, if we do more of this together, we might do a, 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 a topic and talk a little bit more about these these kinds of games. But I find that when role-playing devolves into combat simulators, then they tend to be really, really bad combat engines. And you're spending, you know, eight hours killing kobolds. I sometimes want to kill kobolds. And that's fine. And then I go play something like Doomrock or Gears of War or Warfighter or things like that. Any any number of these, either minis driven or not, games with really, really solid combat engines and really interesting tactical decisions. And then I'll get my fix that way. So I, I recognize where you're coming from. Some people do just want to play D&D to go kill stuff, and that's fine. It's just not my bag. I'd rather either tell a story or go kill things. And if I want to kill things, it's going to be in a board game. Well, since you put in the plug for Durance, I have to back that up because... I've played role-playing games for many years, not so much lately, but I have to say that Durance is one of the best role-playing experiences I've ever had. So if you are a role-player or ever done it, Durance is definitely a game you have to look into. Yeah, any any of the stuff by Bullet, Bully Pulpit, anything like that, I just often find when I'm playing a game of Rise of Moloch, it starts with somebody reading page or two of text, trying to set the set the stage. But that doesn't do it for me. It doesn't give me enough of a narrative hook. And the game starts. And if the game isn't solid enough, that little bit of narrative hook isn't going to bring me home. I recognize that for many people, this is the ideal package. You know, a little bit of flavor, lots of visual appeal, lots of really well-done components that help sell a world, and a little bit of, of combat in the game system itself. And that's cool. It's just I'm increasingly drawn towards more specialized experiences, things like that. If I want to tell a story, I'm going to go tell a story and not worry about, about a fight. Because if you care about the story, the actual fight doesn't really matter so much. Someone's going to win and someone's going to lose. That's fine. I don't want to get into detail about how or why that happens. Like, I'm not going to... If I'm going to play a role-playing game, I'm not. it's not going to be to tell a story like in John Wick, right? Like, John Wick has a story, kind of, and there's lots of things that happen in it, but you don't, you, you're not really going to get involved in it. It's just a whole bunch of guys get shot in the face. And that's fine. If I want John Wick, there are lots of board games that'll give that to me. But if I want a John Wick-style experience, I'm not going to go to a role-playing game to get it. And I find that in many ways, games like Rise of Moloch, even Charterstone to a certain extent as well, they're kind of neither hide nor hair in this awkward middle where I'm not really getting enough of each. But, and that... That's why I was kind of predictably disappointed with Rise of Moloch. But I do respect the fact that even though you don't like the game system too much, you do want to continue with it. I do. I feel as though, as per always, you know, these are just our opinions, but I think if this was... No, 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 we're right, they're wrong. I know. If this was your only one versus many game or your first one versus many game, then I really think you'd enjoy it. Yeah, it'll, it'll, just, it'll do fine. I mean, yeah. The mainly reason I was just disappointed was because it was just more of the same of stuff we've seen already and... And there was no hook for me. I agree that if we hadn't already played many, many other 1v-all minis games like this, that we probably would be much happier with Rise of Moloch. But even if you are considering your first 1v-all minigame, I don't think I could be indifferent to Rise of Moloch or just say, you know, oh, go ahead, whatever your first is fine. Because again, it, it's so static and the way basing works and the way that combat is so uninteresting. And Oh yeah, definitely do not take this the wrong way that is not a recommendation right for you to take it as your first one v all game for sure that is definitely not what i'm saying but if you had already ordered it and it just happens to be your first one v all game then that would be fine but it would definitely not be my recommendation all right so that's our thoughts on world of smog agents of moloch world of smog rise of moloch and on to our topic of the week which is Games that work, but really should not. I'm going to jump in with the first one. I think this is just going to be one of these things where we list games and we go why they shouldn't work and they do and why they are good and or bad. So I'm going to start with Sentinels of the Multiverse. And I really think that the playtesting was there and maybe it was, but this thing would have to be playtested for years. There are so many different heroes and so many different environments and so much going on and it's interacting and the intricate combos that you can get off that seem to be like they were meant to happen and and do, I really don't understand how it was done. Sentinels of the Multiverse should be one of the worst games ever made. It is an original IP that seeks to be about comic book superheroes and there are two there are like so many already iconic superheroes that anytime you try to make up your own and it made up an entire comics canon from scratch that's reasonably compelling to my eyes and i don't even really care much about 
the actual comic book canons. And it's a game where you draw a card, play a card. That's more or less the core of a lot of what's going on. And it still manages to be fun and diverting. It's It should be awful. I should hate it. I should loathe Sentinels of the Multiverse. But I really, really enjoy it. And I know lots of other like hardcore Euro gamers that, that enjoy it as well. And very often they say it in exactly the same way. It's like, I should hate this game. There's practically nothing here, but it really works. And it's really fun. Yeah, Sentinels is, is absolutely, for me, one of the paradigmatic games that, do, that shouldn't work but does. To my mind, there, there are roughly two categories of games that shouldn't work but do. There are the games that are too simple, and then there are the games that are too complicated. And in some ways, Sentinels is both. Because in terms of the core mechanisms, it's simplistic almost to the point of stupidity. You draw a card, you play a card, you use a power, that's it. And in terms of the effects of the interactions, as you say, there's this entire universe of card interactions between what hero you've got, what cards that that hero has out, what villain you're fighting, what environment you're in, what your partners are doing, and all that other stuff. And... To a certain extent, you don't really care about balance too, too much because it's a co-op. And if it were a competitive game, I don't think Sentinels would work at all, at all, at all, at all, at all. But because you get that extra little bit of latitude, that extra little bit of give where it's okay because, you know, co-op games, sometimes they're too easy, sometimes they're too hard, but but overall that's kind of okay. There's still this universe of interactions that are sometimes really interesting. Now, some characters more so than others. And again, the, the character variety is astonishing, given how, again, silly the game is. But yeah, yeah, Sentinels <laughs> really shouldn't work. And I really haven't looked into it much, but there, I, there, there's more likely an FAQ. There's Maybe there are erratas, but I've never seen any reprinted cards or any problems with any of the cards or anything like that. And to their bet, to their, to their, they've done a fantastic job. They have. Other games that I, there are a couple other games that I think that are really so simple that they shouldn't function at all. I think the most simple of this is a game called R, which was recently republished as Brave Rats. I don't know if you've played this, Walker, have you? No. In R, both sides have the seven, the same seven cards. The entire game consists of 14 cards. And on your turn, you each play a card face down, you reveal it, higher number wins. And every card has a special power. And none of these are particularly earth-shattering. One of them is, next card you play gets plus two. So, you know, you set that up and, and then you get plus two. But one of the cards is this turn, the lower number wins. And that's on the three. So there's still two cards, the one and the two that'll beat it because it's lower. Anyway, so so much of the game is about the interaction of how these same seven special powers work. And none of the special powers are complicated. The game takes two minutes to explain, if that, and about five minutes to play. And it shouldn't work, but it's great. It's really good. I highly recommend this game, and it's so stupid, and it shouldn't function. Just seven cards, and you play a card at the same time, higher number wins. It's it's grotesque how simple it is, but it really, really works. Next on my list, you probably may, you may or may not agree, but we'll see. Because we're talk, constantly talking about it after the games, and that's games like Rising Sun and Blood Rage, where they have super powers and abilities that are so overpowered and game-breaking, but the fact that they load so many into the system that it somehow balances out. I don't really feel that way about Blood Rage. I feel that way a little bit about Rising Sun, just a little bit, because as we've said before, there are so many subsystems working together to get these weird outcomes. But... I don't know if the level of craziness is definitely up to the level of, say, Cosmic Encounter. Cosmic Encounter, I think, is a game that shouldn't work at all. And to be fair, to be absolutely fair, sometimes Cosmic Encounter doesn't work. There are some setups that just don't function properly and and, and things kind of fall apart. But Cosmic Encounter has so many rules that look like it should make the game a non-game, like the way the Destiny deck works. It's a multiplayer conflict game in which, on your turn, you don't choose who to attack. The deck tells you who to to attack most of the time. When I first read about this, I thought, wait, where's... what? Like, isn't that one of the, the normal ways you get choices in it? The way allying works is so rigid. It's so incredibly rigid and inflexible. I was, I was, it, it was kind of like my reaction to Rising Sun. When I read the rulebook to Rising Sun, I'm like, wait a minute. I don't think this is as much of a diplomacy game as they think it is. I got the same reaction to reading the, the rulebook to Cosmic Encounter because the way allies work in Cosmic Encounter is so rigid and inflexible. I thought that there wouldn't be any room for deal making or, or really good uh, political interaction. And yet, when Cosmic Encounter works, it's beautiful, and it overcomes its apparent limitations. And I say apparent because the, the, the designers of Cosmic were so sufficiently brilliant that they were able to you know, layer on all these things that look stupid but really, really have good game effects. 
And so Cosmic Encounter is a game that, you know, in some ways, like Sentinels of the Multiverse, is in many ways too simple for, for it to be a successful game on paper and too complicated to be a successful game because of all the way the powers interact. Because for all of you that don't already know, Cosmic Encounter is the original game of everything is broken, so everything ends up working. There's a reason why Cosmic has stood the test of time in many ways, and I think it really is because it's the singular aberration that shouldn't function at all and yet comes together in a marvelous package. I know you don't like Cosmic Encounter. That's fine. You can be wrong. It's true. Next on my list is Shadespire. Why is Shadespire on the list? Well, because you're drawing cards off of two random decks, and then you're rolling dice, which are completely random, and then there's it's just so much randomness all thrown in together, and somehow out the other end comes a fantastic one-versus-one game. To my mind, one of the reasons why Shadespire shouldn't work is just because of how narrow the scope of the game is. There's only, you only get to do 12 activations over the course of a game of Shadespire. And when I first saw that, I thought, no way this could possibly function. The, the notion that an entire skirmish game is going to last a total of 24 activations across both sides struck me as absurd, manifestly absurd. And yet it comes together beautifully because they're so careful about things like positioning, because they're so careful about the kinds of activations that you can do. It also struck me as as lunacy that in Shadespire you have no control over your squad. You pick these pre-made squads, and in most skirmish games like this, you get to pick your guys. You get to choose who you're taking to the fight, and that's where the customization is. And I really think it was clever on their part. They said, no, 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 this is where some of the problems get in. This is where some of the combinations that are unfun, that are broken to the point of, of ruining the game system creep in. So I really think that this is one of those instances of very much like R or very much like claustrophobia or other games like that where the limitations really make the game and they knew what to cut out and they knew what to keep. And I agree with you. In, in addition, there's all the randomness, that's, but somehow out the other end of it, a compelling tactical engagement comes out. It's 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 mind-boggling. These are some of the reasons, to, to, to my mind, and this is true of all the games that I've mentioned and, and all the games going, for, uh, going forward, this is why I would never want to be a game designer, right? Because these are the kinds of things... We know a fair bit about games because we've been playing games for so long and we know what we like and we've seen so many things before. But sometimes that's a detriment because we we look at a game that does things so differently and we immediately think, oh, this isn't going to work. Immediately dismiss it. No. Yeah, yeah. But sometimes it does. And and that's... Much like the game we already talked about at the beginning, right? The Hateful Seven. You read the rule book to that and you're just like, nope. But you see it being played and then you're like, yes, must have it. Yeah, there's in in the case of uh, of the Nasty Seven, it's really because it it captures that human element, that thing that you can't really capture in a rule set, but you really have to see in action to work. And in theory, again, uh, the, the same thing is true of Pit Crew by Jeff Engelstein. When I read the rules to Pit Crew, and indeed when I explained the rules of Pit Crew to people, this is a real time team based game. People's immediate reaction very often is, well, this is easy. No one's going to make any mistakes because it sounds so simple. Pit Crew is mostly just about playing numerical cards in ascending order. And they think, oh, you know, that's it's so easy. No mistakes are going to happen. And then, of course, at the end of the first round, you get to say, ah, well, you did this wrong and you did this wrong and you did this wrong. They're like, how did that happen? It's like, well, it's the human element. You know, you have to make decisions quickly and, and mistakes creep in. On to my last game what I'm going to talk about, and this is mostly just to get Mark to talk about it, because I won't have much to say, and that's Quartermaster General. It's a World War II game based solely on a card system. Yeah, also should be, you're right, It's it's got that sort of Sentinels vibe where it's just, you're just playing a card and doing what the card says uh, says you should do. And it's really, really, really stripped down, and it manages to get a shocking amount of historicity. It's a really bold masterstroke of a, des- of a design. I-, I spoke to the designer last year at Gen Con, and he comes from a pretty hardcore consim background, you know, these eight-hour games with 50-page rulebooks and, and, and complicated hexes. And he really said, look, I'm going to make a six-player, 90-minute-long game that covers all of World War II. And it's just going to be play a card and do what it says it does. And then there's some other hand management aspects behind. And it just oh, it works so beautifully. And I couldn't begin to tell you why. And it manages to, to get a lot of historicity involved. You know, the Wehrmacht acts a little bit like the Wehrmacht. And the, and the, the Soviet Red Army look, works a little bit like the Soviet Red Army. All with so little rules overhead. It's, it's just this bold masterstroke of, of, of genius. You know, shouldn't function at all. And yet it does. The opposite is true. Let me spend a little bit of time talking about a couple of games that are so complicated that they shouldn't work. And one of them I talked about earlier, Ortis Regni. Ortis Regni, not only is it the case that it has 15 different multi-use cards, every card can be used usually about three or sometimes even four different ways. There's no text on any of the cards, which 
was surely the act of a genius or a madman or both. And after you've spent a little bit of time with the game system, it all becomes second nature. At least it did for me or anyone who's done the excellent Steam tutorial. It's a very, very hard game to introduce to people in part because of how intimidating all the cards are. And the fact that it's a game that benefits experience so much that if you're going to be showing showing a new player, it's it's you're probably going to pace them a couple times. And it, it's really hard to introduce people to games like that. But I... I do not know where the designer got the idea that he would be able to pull this off in terms of a game design, but it works beautifully. I still, the cards are so iconic and the art is so striking. It's actual medieval art that it helps reinforce what the cards are used for. But that would only make sense. I think that would only help justify it if it were only, you know, one use per card. But the fact that there are three radically different uses for most of these things, it's, it's just wild how it all comes together. And it's just this singular experience. So often, card games, even with text on the cards, you can't remember how the cards work properly. And it's all very difficult in these interactions, uh, you, you, know, you know, break your head. But somehow, even though, even though there's zero text, it all functions. The last game I'd like to talk about, and this is actually a game that I'm going to try to introduce Walker to in the near future, is a game called Bushido, The Way of the Warrior, or Der Weg der Kriegers, because it was only published in German, but don't worry, it's language independent. And this is a game that's that that's one of these beautiful messes, a little bit like Ordos Regni, that really shouldn't work, because it's a game where a player on their turn gets to be Daimyo, and basically they get to launch an attack in order to get a territory. But the, but the thing is, they don't do the attacking. They nominate another player around the table to do the attacking, and then they nominate another player around the table to be the victim of the attack, and then they nominate another player around the table to be the advisor who can ruin everything. And the thing is, in order for an attack to work successfully, player A designates player B, and then player B needs to spend resources on player A's behalf to get them something, all the while while player D is sitting in the corner saying, I could mess this up at any time I wanted, but somehow it works. It's this beautiful constellation of of leveraging people's self-interest and manipulating the table. It's 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 got it's a bit like cosmic in the sense that the, the, the human interactions, despite the fact that it's so stripped down in terms of the of the uh, so rigid rather than stripped down in terms of mechanisms. And then when you layer on top of this the fact that there's all manner of special effects tiles and and and, and nonsense, it's a really really difficult game to explain. And on paper it shouldn't work. And on paper, nothing should ever be successfully done. And on paper, no one should really be able to score any points because anytime you get a point, it's because someone else gave you that point. But somehow it works. It's a beautiful mess. And I've, I've got a, 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 a bit of a soft spot for beautiful messes. So I'm, I'm looking forward to getting that to the table again soon. Reminds me of Imperial 2030, where it was one of the first games that we played, you know, where I came from like a big risk, you know, lots of plastic. It's Gen Con, it's the middle of the night. We're in the we're in the library. We play with this game, Imperial Twenty Thirty. No one's ever played it. You know, we're sitting at the table, and then suddenly the army that you're attacking with no longer is your army, <laughs> and someone else. You know, and it was just such a weird concept that it broke our minds. It was is quite hilarious. And that is our feature topic. Well, thank you very much for joining us for this episode of So Very Wrong About Games. We hope you join us again soon. If you would like to reach out to us, you can reach Walker by email at justrolledadice at gmail.com. That's J-U-S-T-R-O-L-L-D-I-D-I-C-E at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at all the games you like. You can also find our So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page. That's where we keep a lot of our discussion. If you have any suggestions or requests, please send them to us. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks once again for joining us, and we hope to see you again next week. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.